Hooray! Uh, just for the recording, for the sake of people who maybe missed last week or aren't here again and unable to hear what we shared last week, the recording at the end of John's sermon got corrupted on the USB stick. It's just a technical issue, which is now fixed. But I did share after John's sermon about the kind of just the, the terrain of Beacon Church's land, uh, finances, and then I said in the midweek update, you can catch up with it if you missed it, where you can't. Um, so just for the sake, for the record, for, sorry if you've heard this already, literally just for a couple of minutes, but it's just fair to bring everyone up to speed on where we're at um, as a church and our stewarding of, of finances and how we support the mission financially and what God's called us to here in Home Bay and beyond. Uh, just to I'll explain, if you're a member, you'd receive um, uh, a financial statement, an uh, update every few months randomly. Um, which just bring up to speed is some transparency on where we're at with how we steward the money you so generously give to the service of what we're called to and so on. Um, so we'll continue to do that as well. But just to help explain where we're at right now, the current kind of landscape at the moment is that um, we, our income is about just currently about 10% below our needed outgoings. We've had long chats with the trustees about how we can, anything we need to do differently. Are, are we spending money in areas we're not called to or need to, need to change? And we, we've, we've looked at where we can trim down where we're spending. But where we're spending now, we're at a place where if, if we trim back on anything else, this is stuff that God has called us to. So therefore we know he'll provide and we're trusting that. We're fully confident for that. We're in faith for that. But the reality is at the moment, recent months and if the trajectory continues, ongoing months, our income is 10% below what we need for what we're called to now. So all we're asking is, can you just pray about it, have a chat with God about it, and does he want you to do anything about that? And if not, brilliant. And if so, brilliant. Just please have a chat with God about it. Uh, in the meantime, thank you so much for your generous ongoing giving. It is an act of worship. You're worshipping with your wallet, but we don't take it for granted Either we're very grateful and fully appreciate it as well. But that's where we're at at the moment. Please just pray about it. And secondly, um, that's the current uh, terrain, but future, we believe God is calling us into um, new, greater investment, pulling, rolling our sleeves up into partnering what God's doing amongst our younger generations in particular. And we want to, um, we, we've been investigating how do we explore what it means to invest in what God is doing particularly as a church in Herne Bay, what God is doing amongst us in the younger generations, the below 30s, the noughts to 10s, the 10s to 20s, and the 20s to 30s, God is doing something. And while to us, we may look at numbers and think it's not very big, compared to what God is doing in the local church in the region, God is doing something quite specific here at Beacon Church. We need to fully treasure that and ask how can we partner further in what he's doing amongst the younger generations. So we are looking at investing in staff with that in mind, and so in the next few weeks, sometime in, in October, I think it's two, three weeks' time, we will share more detail what that looks like. We're very excited about what it's going to look like, but it will require some sacrifice on our behalf, and we just want to set the scene for you just to be praying about it, having a chat with God, and see what he says, and we will explain more next month. Is that okay? Good. Thank you. And hopefully, anybody else who missed this time, you cannot miss out. Lovely. Um, Luke chapter 16. Um, where have we got in Luke chapter 16? Let's remember of where we're at. Two weeks ago, um, David preached on the parable of the dishonest manager, if you remember. And what's happening in this whole moment, this moment in time that we find in this chapter, Jesus has been contending with the Pharisees, who are the spiritual leaders of the community. 
And he's been berating them, hasn't he? He's been proper telling them off. Sometimes nuanced and sometimes outright. And, and obviously, therefore, whomever else it applies to, maybe us included, about misconstruing what it means to live a holy and God-honouring life. That's what he's saying to them. To them, to the Pharisees, it's all been about looking holy, looking respectable and acquiring prestige and privilege and so on. That's been the whole heart's pursuit. But Jesus, God himself, in human disguise, he didn't even match the ideals that they were pursuing. He didn't look the same, did he? They're, they're trying to work out what it means to look holy and how do they acquire privilege. Jesus is the complete opposite. Jesus didn't look holy or respectable. He ate and parted with the outcasts and the unclean, didn't he? To them, that didn't look right. And neither did he consider prestige or privilege something to be grasped. In fact, Philippians 2 talks about that. Jesus was the complete opposite. So now we come to verse 14 of this chapter, where Jesus continues to strike hard with barbed statements that can, together, this clutch, as you read through these verses, you see these are three separate things. What's going on here? They seem unconnected. They seem random, but they all serve his same message, as we'll discover in the next kind of 25 minutes or so. There are three seemingly unconnected statements by Jesus here in one hit. One is about uh, status and wealth, verses 14 and 15. Jesus talks about status and wealth. Uh, and then in verses 16 and 17, he talks about God's law and God's kingdom. Uh, and then in verse 18, he then talks about divorce and remarriage. These all seem wildly unconnected to each other. Uh, and even perhaps in, for some part of that, in, uh, it seems unconnected to the prior conversation as well. But there has to be a reason why either Jesus said all these three things in the same breath, or it wasn't literally in the same breath, but it was around the same time, and there must be a reason why Luke has kept them together in this part of, the, of his gospel. Does that make sense? So therefore, let's find out. Let's read from verse 14. Up to verse 18. It says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things. And they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And then he continues, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then... The good news of the kingdom is, of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier, easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And then he continues, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And then carries on telling a story about rich man and Lazarus that we'll look at next week. Now, let's just take these one at a time, in their own right, and let's discover the common thread as we go, okay? So, first of all, the first two verses here, verse 14 and 15, about status and wealth. Let's just read them again. The Pharisees, who are lovers of money, heard all these things, they ridiculed Jesus, and he says to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What's happening here? Well, remember that this cluster of verses are a brief pause between Jesus' bigger teaching 
on um, wealth and possessions. There's a parable of the dishonest manager is just told. And like I say, next week we'll be looking at the rich man and Lazarus. And Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. They are not there to be rich. They are there as spiritual leaders, remember. But nevertheless, as verse 14 says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money. They're lovers of money, and therefore what Jesus is teaching on about money and wealth and possessions, they're getting triggered. Jesus is pushing on a sore idol in their hearts. So as a result, they ridicule him, is what it says. They ridiculed him. There's no attempt to listen to him. There's no attempt to hear him out. Simply there is contempt for him and his teaching. And this word ridicule here, um, that's in the original, in the Greek, in the original text, it's a particularly snidey word. It means to, to scoff, to sneer at someone, to, to turn your nose up at, at someone. It's a very personal and a very nasty thing. It's what the people around the cross do in Luke chapter 23, when Jesus is in the cross, it says they scoff at him and they go, well, he saved others, let him save himself. It's a really like, nasty, bullying it's just a very personal attack. And that's the same word that's getting used here, that they're ridiculing him, they're scoffing at him. So clearly, these Pharisees, lovers of money, are very touchy about this subject. So Jesus immediately keeps pushing on the subject. I love it. And he's determined to not let up on this sore spot that he's found in their hearts. Their love of money is corrupting their spirituality, their integrity, and their holiness and in turn that has influence on the rest of the community as, as goes the leader so goes the organisation as they say you can see that time and time again if you look at a preachers church leaders who are clearly lovers of money have a look at where their churches end up it happens so even these Pharisees they've got influence on the people around them who listen to their teaching and follow them so Jesus takes this kind of thing very very Seriously. So he says to them, he says, you try and big yourselves up before men, but my father knows the real deal. And then he ends with this final flourish, what you use to elevate yourselves is an abomination before God. Now, an abomination, it's a big word, isn't it? It simply means the absolute opposite of an acceptable offering before God. And so therefore, as a result, it's detestable to him. The Greek word, abomination, it means something that stinks. And so what they treasure, what the Pharisees treasure, God finds absolutely repugnant. So Jesus is pointing out that the Pharisees' sense of self-worth is something that comes from human metrics, human measure. How they perceive themselves is according to faulty human understanding. Things like, well, more money means you're more important. Uh, no. <laughs> They're justifying themselves in the eye of man, according to man's measure, man's treasure. But it's, it's still it's what God thinks that counts. And living according to man's decided measure is therefore actually detestable in God's sight. It's big language, isn't it? It's huge. So before we rush on, I just need to ask the question of myself... <laughs> but feel free to ask it of yourself as well. How many times have I measured myself in worldly ways? 
about how much money I do or don't have, about how much property I do or don't own, about what job I do or don't have, about the places I do or don't get to visit, and so on. How many times have I measured myself in worldly ways and wondered how much I'm worth? or how much better I am than the next person, or how much worse I am than the next person. How many times have I done that? Because if that's where I find my value, God actually finds that repugnant. And I need to listen to that. This is about looking at things through, instead of human eyes, it's looking through things through God's eyes. Money and wealth do not affect your value as a human being. I mean, money is actually a surface thing. It's an important part of life, but it's a surface thing. It's a cultural construct for how we exchange commodities. That's, that's what it is. They used to use sheep, or the joke in the Middle East is about camels, isn't it? All that kind of stuff. It's the same thing. It's not the coins in your pocket or the numbers in your bank statement. It's, it's less about that as much as it's actually it's an agreement between different parties who decide the rules about how that all works. It's a concept that, of course, like I say, has real-life implications for all of us. Of course it does. But the value of the cash in your pocket or the value of the goods that you want to purchase, that can change at any moment. And, oh boy, are we realising that right now. It can change at any minute. And yet, we can still place our personal value in money and stuff, can't we? And God finds that abominable, and so should we. Under the surface the heart that matters. And that's why Jesus then continues when he talks about God's law and God's kingdom. Let's just read verses 16 to 17. Jesus then says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And these two verses here, they're kind of the hinge to all of this. Jesus is pointing out that his newly arrived kingdom, this realm in which he truly reigns over willing participants who know they are loved and love their king back, that is the key to an abundant life that is filled with value and purpose and power. It's not according to man's decided measure. And this is why he brings this in here. I just need to point out verse 16 where it says uh, uh, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. As always, don't read a verse on its own. Always read a verse in context of what the rest of scripture says. This sentence does not mean that anyone can acquire eternal life by violent seizure, by forcing God's hand. If I try hard enough by hook or by crook, I'll earn it. <laughs> that is anti-gospel. That is the complete opposite of the undeserved love that is on offer to us through Christ. But what it does mean, what it's saying here, talking about um, everyone forces his way into it, or people are, are, false, are, are false, forcefully ushered into it, is, is another uh, rephrasing of the original language. What it's saying is that there becomes an urgency on our behalf for others to see what we see. We don't want them missing out. I've got Christ and I want... My friends and my family and this stranger I'm talking to in the street, I don't want them missing out. I want them to meet Christ. I want them to see, and, to see what I see and have what I have. There becomes an urgency on our behalf the more we, we see people through God's eyes, isn't there? 
We feel that, that, that inertia in us. I want you to have what I have. There's an urgency to it. And also, conversely, on, on, the, on the recipient's behalf, there, there becomes an eagerness that pays off. Yeah, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be opened unto you. That is not a passive thing. And that is something that as people's eyes are gradually open to the wonders of Christ, there becomes an urgency on their behalf. I want what you've got. And of course, in those moments, as people's eyes are open to the wonders of Christ, there is a battle where the world, the flesh and the devil is in opposition to you finding Christ and entering his kingdom. And so inevitably, in preaching the good news and in receiving the good news, there is a push and a pull. There is a tug of war. It's an ages-old spiritual battle for souls. And so there is a sense of a forceful dynamic to it. It's not something that happens passively. Does that make sense? But then coming back to this theme of knowing the heartbeat of what's really at stake and what honours God and what blesses our souls, Jesus here, he lays out, just very briefly, in one sentence, he lays out the journey of history to his hearers. He says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. Remember, he's talking to the Pharisees who are fully genned up on the Holy Scriptures, the law and the prophets, what we would now call the Old Testament. And yet, they know it inside out, and yet they're only interested... They're only interested in what it says on the surface, not in discovering its true heartbeat again. They're only interested in how it serves them. But Jesus is saying that the law brought humanity's story up to the point where John the Baptist appeared, who was heralding the very same rescuer the law had been promising all along, Jesus himself. And that was the moment when God's kingdom began truly breaking through into our world. The heavenly realm encroaching ours in a new and remarkable way. The, the barrier between our two worlds coming down as never before. It's a change that was ushered in by the king himself. The king and his domain has now arrived. This is a new age. That's what Jesus is saying. And so Jesus, he said himself in Matthew chapter 5, he said that he didn't come to abolish the law. We don't need it anymore. It's not important anymore. That was just the prequel. Now it's the important stuff. Jesus is saying that's not the case. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And therefore it's still relevant. And so verse 17, he says, It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. It's not that we still have to follow it in the same way. But what it does mean is that the law is not obsolete. It still holds a vital place in history, albeit one where we need to see it through the lens of Christ. Because in reality, the law had acted not just as a meticulous means to live holy lives set apart for the one true God that none of us could ever fulfill. But it also, therefore, because of that, it proved to be two things. It proved to be a mirror to our desperate human condition, lost in our sin. It showed the people of Israel and anyone else looking in or wanting to join, it showed them what they're capable of. I mean, Think of our UK law. All the crimes our UK law lists and all the safeguards that are in place because of our UK law show us what we're capable of. Because if we as a society weren't capable of those, of those things, it wouldn't need to be law. 
Even our UK law is a mirror to our souls and go, that's what you're capable of. That's in us. It's a mirror. And the, the law, the, the civil and the ceremonial and the moral law that God introduced through Moses for his people, here's how you live holy lives that ultimately prove they could never live up to and there's only, they, they need a rescuer who can, just showed them there's a mirror. You're broken. You need me. The law's a mirror, but secondly, it's also, therefore, it's a signpost to the one who is able to lift us out of our mess. It showed us what we're really like, and it showed us who we've always really needed. And Jesus, that rescuer, was the only one who could ever live up to the law's standards, and now we can enter the true eternal rest of his work, the perfect life and the perfect sacrifice, that, that law is now fulfilled on our behalf completely by Jesus who lives in us. Amen? Wonderful. The Pharisees were obsessed with the letter of the law and how it binds other people to their advantage and how it boosts their own status and so on. While Jesus is obsessed with how, how him fulfilling it on our behalf becomes something that gets lived out in a whole other way for freedom and for fruitfulness. There's a lovely story about a farmer who gets a knock on his door one morning. He's got his farmhouse and his big plot of land, and he opens the door, Marlin, because all farmers talk like that, and um, I met a cattle farmer in, uh, uh, was it Upstreet? Not that far away. Couldn't understand a word he said. It was the old kid. He said, I was like, yeah, uh, three times on Thursdays. I've no idea what you just said. But it just literally couldn't understand him. So as far as I'm concerned, that's how farmers talk. But this farmer, he opens the door. He goes, morning. And there's a man standing there from the energy company. He's a re representative from the energy company with a piece of paper in his hand. And behind him, there's a bunch of trucks with all his workers and his colleagues all standing there. And he goes, morning, I'm a rep representative for the energy company. Here's a piece of paper. And the farmer takes it and goes, um, we want to run a power line through your field. And the farmer goes, well, no, you're not. And, and, and the energy company um, representative, he goes, well, that piece of paper, legally, that piece of paper says that we can. And the letter of the law says we can, and so we will. And it's all on that piece of paper. And the representative turns and walks back to his colleagues to ready to get the work done. In the meantime, the farmer walks over to his barn, casually lets his bull out, and as the bull starts running after the energy company uh, uh, staff, he shouts out, show him your paperwork. <laughs> in, in the same way, the Pharisees have abu been abusing the law to their advantage, They've been refusing to see anything other than, loop, than loopholes that suit them. And Jesus, the author and completer of the law, he tramples over any word games the Pharisees have played to their own benefit, proving them just to be the insects that they are. And he demonstrates once again that if we focus on the surface, we miss the very heartbeat of it all. We can follow the rules or we can even misconstrue the rules like the Pharisees and therefore miss the point. It's heart change that affects the outside. It's not the other way around. Jesus' kingdom, it just flips our twisted assumptions. It's not an outside-in thing. It never works. 
Humanity's been trying it for millennia. Still not sorted out the, the mess. It's always inside out. He brings heart change. Everything else changes as a result. So again, more questions. To ask myself, feel free to join me. How often have I qualified myself according to how much I do or don't read the Bible? How much have I qualified myself according to how much I do or don't pray? Do the holy things? How much do I qualify myself by how much I do or don't give? Even when it comes to our modern kind of, uh, Christian lens of how we view things, let's ensure we don't miss the heartbeat of what it means to follow Jesus. He qualifies us. We don't qualify ourselves. Amen. So then we come to verse 18, which feels like a bit of whiplash. Because then Jesus comes, what he's doing, he's using an example of the Pharisees' kind of legalese, if you like, just to press his point home further. And the example he chooses is one about divorce. Now remember, this is all about the Pharisees and people like them who are being so obsessed with the letter of the law and how much you need to do to become holy and how much you need to do or acquire um, to be better than the next person or how much you can get away with um, and what, what it is that makes you more, a more worthy human being than the next person and so on. And this has consumed them and their sense of self-worth so that all along they keep missing the point of it all that your achievements and the letter of the law are not what saves you or makes you whole or makes you free. What saves you and makes you whole and makes you free as a human being is God himself cleaning you from the inside out and not from the outside in. And so, by using divorce as an example, Jesus is showing us how that works. Just read verse 18, Jesus says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now again, this is, do we look at this through human eyes, the letter of the law, or do we look at this through God's eyes? He's saying that regardless of what a divorce certificate might say, what the law might say, even if the paperwork says you're now free to marry and sleep with someone else, you may not be free to do so in God's eyes. Saying, please don't miss the heartbeat of what it's all there for in the first place. Because we need to understand that the context at the time, in that culture, in that society at the time, there was a pervading school of thought um, initiated by a, a rabbi, a teacher called Hillel, who died 20 years before all this was happening. But his school of thought still persisted. And that was that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. It used to be, the wording used to be, any unreasonable behaviour. And then they conveniently removed the word unreasonable, and you could divorce your wife for any behaviour. So, I don't like the way she serves my dinner up. I don't like the way she does or doesn't run the Dyson round. I don't like the way she does her hair. Could be any reason, certificate of divorce, you're out, I'm going to get myself another wife. It's awful. And therefore, the treatment of the women was awful because they immediately become outcasts out in the streets at their husband's whim. It's awful. But Jesus' view, yet again, looks below the surface and therefore it has a very, he has a very different view of marriage in the first place. And Jesus is saying to them, if you break for sinful, for selfish reasons, what is actually a covenant before the living God, you can't just shake that off and think it doesn't matter anymore. 
Just because the paperwork says it's no longer a thing, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not a thing. Once again, Jesus is proving that only being interested in the letter of the law misses the heartbeat of the law. Now, I just need to note, Jesus here, he's, con- he's concerned about protecting the vulnerable. It's always his heart. And the Pharisees are viewing it from what they or the husband can get away with, for example, or how they can use it to their advantage. But Jesus is therefore, he's, he's furious with them. And he's angry on behalf of those who get left behind in these people's wake. So, with that in mind, I just need to make this very clear. As a church, for example, we would believe, biblically, there is a place for those, um, for example, people who are on the receiving end of a spouse, the other party, breaking the marriage vows. We believe there is space and grace for those people to remarry. That's not quite what Jesus is talking about here. If If someone is on the receiving end of unrepentant, irredeemable behavior by their spouse, you know, the breaking of... The ongoing breaking of loving vows and uh, abuse, adultery, um, a consistent failure to provide and to protect and to cherish and so on, then there is space to not be shackled by that other person's sin or toxic behaviour. Absolutely. Wherever that person is physically left, I don't want you as a wife anymore, I don't want you as a husband anymore, wherever it might be. Or perhaps you have to leave because they they haven't physically left you and wanted a divorce, but they've already spiritually broken the vows and already spiritually left and have no desire to repent or change. Then that person has already effectively, they've broken the marriage vows and uh, Christ's grace is sufficient to bring freedom from an otherwise enslaving situation. Now, every situation is unique and needs to be talked through but here we're just trying to catch the heartbeat of what's at stake, remember. I mean, even as another example of that, I am aware of church leaders who have advised women to stay, told them they have to stay with their adulterous or abusive husbands because that man doesn't want a divorce. I'm sorry, that advice and that counsel is abusive in itself. And yet again, that's obsessed with the letter of the law and not its heartbeat. Do you understand? And so Matthew chapter 19, you can have a look at the verses there. Jesus permits divorce explicitly and he implies room for remarriage as well when you've been on the receiving end of your spouse's sexual immorality, for example. Jesus doesn't demand it because there can be, sometimes, room for repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. But Jesus does permit it when that doesn't happen. But also Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he reveals the very same heartbeat of that in allowing divorce and remarriage in the event of a believer being abandoned by an unbelieving spouse. Again, there's, there's room for grace to not be enslaved, shackled by somebody else's choices and someone else's sin. There's grace for you. These, these examples, they, they just show us that God's grace is sufficient to provide for an individual to not be bound by someone else's sin. And I know there's people here, this is some of your story, you've been through these situations, I just want to make sure you hear that again. God's grace is sufficient to provide for you to not be bound by someone else's sin. Every scenario is unique, but the principle, Jesus' heart is here for us to take on board and to digest and to love. So yet again, Jesus is not interested in the paperwork Jesus is interested in the heart. His kingdom values, 
not just ones that are based on man's values, but God's kingdom values. In his kingdom, integrity and faithful devotion to God are foundational. They are the key to your character. They are the key to how you live your whole life as an act of worship, which includes marriage and relationships, for example. So once again, Jesus is simply demonstrating what it means to catch his heartbeat beneath his word. So again, I'm going to ask a question, and you'll feel free to ask yourself as well. Do I view my relationships from his perspective or from my own? My marriage. Do I look at that through his eyes or just how I'm feeling in the moment? Do I view my friendships through his eyes or just how I feel about it? Do I view my, my relationships with my church family through how I feel in any given moment or through his eyes? Am I feeling his heartbeat within it? Whenever we're tempted to quit on someone that we promised ourselves to or to bite back in anger and, and so on, maybe the more in those moments we take a breath instead and see them and the situation through his eyes, things would be radically different, wouldn't they? And that is where we will be bringing him glory, bring others blessing and bring us healing. So, as I wrap this up, Jesus is keen for us to not get so caught up in doing the holy stuff that we, can't, we fail to see the wood for the trees. The Pharisees, they scrutinized the law, they added to it and so on, so that they could be admired and honored by others and feel better about themselves and so on. While Jesus, the author of the law and the, the one who came to fulfill it, he instead summed all the law up in one sentence. Love God and love other people. And there is the very heartbeat of what he's been intending all along, something that has never changed. Love God, love others. And so, for us, we need to let that be the lens in how we perceive status and wealth, in how we perceive his kingdom at work, how we perceive relationships and promises and so on. Last year, I listened to Barack Obama's autobiography. Strangely enough, called A Promised Land. It's good, it's huge, it goes on forever. But I listen to it, it's narrated by the man himself. So I get to hear him telling his own story about his upbringing and about when he went to college and university and school and so on and how he met Michelle and when they got married and started having children and getting involved in politics and how he ended up in the White House and how he started contending with the US economy and stuff in the Middle East and you get to hear all about all this. I walked through this whole journey told to me by the man himself. I still don't know Barack Obama. I've heard him tell me his story, but I still don't know him. And the Pharisees, they knew the law. So much so that they played word games with it. But they didn't know the judge who was standing right in front of them. And we can know God's word. And we can still not know the author. And therefore we can fail to catch his heartbeat. So just... As I end, may our hearts cry be what Psalm 119 verse 18 says. It says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. That's what it means to see it come alive. That's what it means to see it lived out through us. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Let me pray for us.
Lord, help that to be our prayer. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Lord, may I truly see you, the author and perfecter of our faith, fulfiller and completer of the law that you wrote, that shows us what we're capable of, but shows us of who you truly are. Let us see you. Let us know you. Let us respond in kind through our own acts and thoughts and hearts. And may that urgency in us arise for others to not miss out any longer and to see you for themselves. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.